everybody, calm down. just knock out electrical grid systems it would knock out telecommunications it would probably literally fry um the computer i'm talking to you through all right guys welcome to this week's episode of the grime america show we're going to be talking with robert shock a little bit later about all sorts of ancient mysteries uh but first how's it going graham hey darren i'm doing good buddy yeah i also want to welcome joey to the igloo tonight he's going to be with us as a regular staple here hopefully to help us out with some of the technical stuff and take a bit of the load off yeah yeah he can run the gadgetry so that i can just we can just flap our gums welcome right. aboard joey thanks for having me guys so yeah we got robert shock coming up here uh he's going to talk about some new stuff that we haven't really heard of much like ganong padang i think that's how you call it in indonesia some some uh yeah crazy new discoveries yeah about his new book right what's it called uh forgotten civilizations yeah solar outbursts and stuff like that it was yeah. a good book yeah easter island chapter especially yeah, yeah you know, but also everyone knows really we have an affinity stuff, so. for easter island yeah in grime america true that so it looks like we're giving away some cash we've uh, crossed the threshold of our minimum money bomb donation yeah to find out how to to contribute to the show and and be entered into uh, us gifting back half of our contributions to to a listener, go to grimerica.ca and hit the money bomb page or forward slash money bomb, right? Yep, grimerica.ca slash money bomb, and there's some uh, no donation required options there as well. So check it out and help the show, and we'll have some fun. Yep. So we'll be uh, giving away a hundred bucks at the end of this month. Yep, and I think we'll let my daughter draw it. Cool. Maybe we should videotape it. Nah. I don't know if I want her on the internet. Uh, we should welcome fucking Costa, Costa Rica. Costa Rica or Costa Rica? I think either is acceptable. Costa. Costa, Costa Rica? I think Costa Rica is acceptable. Let's ask our Costa Rican listener. Yeah. yeah so we can welcome them to the uh, hegemony movement, the Grand American hegemony movement, the hedgehog movement. What's this at? 88? Hopefully, uh, we can get to 100 here pretty quick. Uh, so, Easter was on 420. Happy 420, boys. I know uh, Graham doesn't partake, but I did you have a good 420, Joey? I did, actually. Um, I actually just took it easy at home because I was, uh, my birthday's two days actually before, so I was out giving her pretty hard uh, on the Saturday. Oh, really? I, um, 
So your birthday's on four eighteen. I, uh, yeah, I didn't, I was, my wife was out of town, so it was just me and Madison, so I didn't really get to partake either. I'll make up for it on 427. So is 420 a thing every year then that people celebrate, or is it just like, because it was Easter? No, 420 is a thing every year for, uh, for stoners around the world unite. Do you look at your watch at 420 every day, trying to like no, time, time it that it's way? It's a or? day. No, it can be a time too, It no? can be a time yeah. too, but it's more the day. But it's bait, well, here's... I got a little rundown for you guys. So, what do you guys think? Do you guys, either of you guys know where 420 comes from? Yeah, it's from the cops. 420, man, on the corner. No? What do you think? I, I just was always heard it was like the international uh, pot smoking time. International pot smoking time. <laughs> All right. Well, I get, I got, I know the real answer. So, we'll do, I figure we'll do a little rundown here and we'll see which one you guys think is right. And the list is a, do you have a list. Too. I have a list. Okay. So, okay, it'll be multiple choice just to make it easier. So, 420 is a police code for marijuana uh, violation. 420 is the number of active chemical compounds in marijuana. 420 is Adolf Hitler's birthday. 420 is what you get if you multiply 12 by 35, the numbers of the titles of the Bob Dylan song, Rainy Day Woman, number 12 and number 35 which does contain the refrain, everybody must get stoned. Or is it based on uh, the five Waldos was a time of day they used to meet to go look for the legendary lost marijuana crop? Is that all of them? That's, that's your choices. I've heard different ones before, too. Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's tons. I can't remember those are the all. options I'm giving you. What do you pick? Mm. I'm going to say the chemical one. Chemical one? Yeah, I stick with the cop. The cop one. Okay, well, 420 is not a criminal code for marijuana. No, but is it a cop criminal code for something? Nah, if it is, it's not related to pot. And Joey, you're wrong too. There's only 315 chemical compounds in marijuana. The actual reason is the five Waldos. They use the number 420 because that was the number, the time they would meet each day to go search for the lost marijuana crop near Point Reyes. So what actually happened is um, it was because one of the Waldos turned out to be buddies with one of the guys from the Grateful Dead. Who are the five Waldos? Uh, let's see if we can get their names here. I don't think they... Uh, are they just like five brothers or something like that? That was just five dudes that used to hang out. Oh. They go by like um, pseudonyms. So they're like Waldo Dave, Waldo. So they claimed it and it's been like... Can you confirmed. imagine that? Like starting a meme, a meme that's like huge, like around the world now. Yeah. So that's actually what it was. So then the 420 turned to a thing to them after that. And they just stuck with it 420 time. And then the only reason it jumped up is that Waldo Dave's older brother was a friend of Phil Lesh, the bassist for the Grateful Dead. So then they toured the world for 35 years preaching 420. So I bet you our previous guest, uh, what's his name again? Booth? No, the other guy. Stanley Krippner was a part of that whole, uh, oh, ba- he saw the beginning of the 420 meme. Yeah, and then our other goose, our other guest Booth says, uh, <laughs> says 710. Yeah, that's the oil, oil so right? What's that, July 10th? That's oil, backwards. Smoke oil all day on July 10th? That's the day yeah. before my birthday. That's cool. Me and Joey are birthdays around the... Pot days? Pot days. Mm-hmm. I'm March 10th. I'm 310. 
What's that? That's like a gun, I think. Anyway, just thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, enough of that. Any spam grab this week? Uh, well, I got a, a little email from uh, Uncle Dave. Uncle Dave. Yeah, he listened to the Chris Ryan episode and he gave us a four point five out of five. He he's, says very good. I like to your get a five out of Uncle Dave. I yeah, think. yeah, Uncle Dave. Yeah, I won't get a five out of Uncle Dave. Very good. I like your style and deep questions. He says he used to teach behavioral interviewing to line managers and search consultants and recruiters. He said, good stuff. It really applies to journal type interviewing also. So thanks, Uncle Dave. Oh, he also says, love what you're doing. Keep it up. So that's kind of perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Uncle Dave. And we got a donation too uh, from an, I wanted to say a special thanks to, uh, uh, I should just say Jason. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so yeah, we really, really appreciate yeah, the we do. contribution. We always appreciate the contributions. Anyway, send us stories, send us, uh, jingles, send us money, send us whatever. It all helps. Send us love. So we might see the open minds guys next week. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. We're going to try and meet them for dinner when we're down in Phoenix, going stateside. If they'll let us over the border. Oh yeah. There won't be any problem with that. Perfect. Last time I went, they, they said, what do you do for your day job? What does that mean? How would you even, why when would you even thing, reference say, it? Hey, I, I think that's job. a guy from Grimerica. <laughs> I'll be like, what's Grimerica, sir? <laughs> I'll put that in right, and like the night before, I'll just put like a giant pot leaf on the homepage or something. <laughs> Can you come with us, please, sir? <laughs> See you in Phoenix, Graham. So what are you going to say if they ask you if you've ever smoked weed at the board? Are you going to lie? Yep. Okay. I'll straight up lie. Hmm. And if they ask about Grimerica psilocybis, I'll just say it was all a clever facade for, you know, we do entertainment here. I'd have to seriously consider what I'm going to say if they ask me if I've ever done drugs. No. Say fucking no, dude. I'm telling you. Yeah, but what if they have the truth there? If they have some evidence that I have? Shitty, then you're not allowed in the States. If you say yes, you're not allowed in the States. Really, eh? Yeah. That's fucked. Just say no, man. All right. Just say no to Just drugs. Just say no. <laughs> Just say no to drugs when people ask you. If even if I say like I didn't inhale or something like that? No, don't even say that. Just say no to drugs. All right. When people ask you if you've, they've done them at any border. Let's not even just say the U.S. border. Let's say any time at any border crossing, if the guy asks you if you've ever done illegal drugs, you should just say no. True. So anyways, we might be able to meet up with Jason McClellan from Open Minds and maybe some of the other crew there. That'd be cool. Rohando? Alejandro. Alejandro. Speaking uh, of Open Minds, like I'd like maybe. to give him a quick plug because if you guys are interested in current news, especially in regards to UFOs and cool topics, Open Minds is constantly updating the feeds every day. So every day, go on openminds.tv and there's a shitload of new sightings on there. And they have a rundown and a very, very good skeptical view. I'm sometimes almost too skeptical for me, but I like it anyways. Uh, yeah. You're a believer? So, yeah. No, I'm just in the middle, buddy. In the middle? Yeah. Balanced view. Yeah. He's a piece of white bread. He's a piece of white bread. So it must be time for Graham's Profound UFO Quote of the Week. How do I catch you off guard this week? Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. This, this craft 
was 50 to 60 feet long with a gray metallic structure. On the front of this craft was a large, steady, bright red light. I could delineate where the red stopped on the structure of this craft because red was reflecting off the gray structure. The design of this craft was symmetrical in shape with a prominent aft indentation on the undercarriage. From this portion of the undercarriage, a green light, pyramid-shaped, emerged with the light initially in the trail position. This green light then swung 90 degrees, coming directly into the front windshield and lighting up the entire cockpit of the aircraft. All colors inside the cabin of the helicopter were absorbed by this green light. That includes the instrument panel lights on the aircraft. As a result of my experience, I am convinced this object was real and that these types of incidents should require a thorough investigation. That's from Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence J. Coyne describing UFO encounter he witnessed with three other airmen over Mansfield, Ohio, October 18, 1973, and that's the quote taken from the United Nations UFO hearing in 1978. JC, baby. That's a good one. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Well done. And, uh, I believe him. So do I. Yes, I'm a believer, too. There you go. Turns out. Well, does that about do it, then? I think we need to mention uh, we have a new listener from Costa Rica. Do we not do that? I'm getting deja vu. Uh, crack, clock, fuck, the clock is coming in quick on our one-year anniversary, too. We made it a whole year. Yeah, it's crazy, eh? Fucking, what's today? Today's the 22nd? Yeah, so and, we're 11 months in now. Yeah, well, we're 10 months and 29 days. It would be a month from the 24th to be our one-year anniversary. We'll see. We might not make it yet. We better not get too... Uh, well, we have guests lined up past that point, so we're going to be busy for the next uh, month or two for sure. Yep. So we'll make it at least a year. Uh, we'll see about the live show we've been talking about for a while. We'll see if that happens. I haven't really even started looking at the logistics of that. Maybe we'll throw that at Joey. What do you think, Joe? You up to the task? Yeah, I think I can handle it. Perfect. We'll be live. You heard it here first. <laughs> And we've got a meditation, uh, Grimerica Meditates episode coming up next, I believe. That's all uh, recorded, and we're going to release that uh, next week while we're in Phoenix. Yeah, so you guys can, uh, as always, you can uh, hit the, oh, well, not as always. I guess it's recent. You can hit us up with your, uh, leave us a message on our Skype voicemail, and just uh, go to the Skype, search Grimerica, and leave us a message. Sweet. Oh yeah, and then uh, we got we gave Joey an email address too. So he's producer Joe, J O E, at grimerica dot com. So if you want to bitch about us, you can send it to him, and I guess it won't really do anything. Oh yeah, but you can send him the cues. So we're gonna try out the Ask a Grimerican segment. So you can send any random question to Joey, and uh, we're gonna try and bullshit our way through it. And he'll surprise us with it, right? Yeah, and he'll catch us off guard. So don't CC us. Just send it to Joey. He'll drop some bombs. I think uh, that's what it. Should we jump into or take a quick break and jump into shock? I think we went, what, a little over an hour and a half with yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It great so, chat. Yeah. Enjoy the chat with Robert Chalk.
Okay, guys, today here in Grimerica, we're going to be uh, stamping the passport of Mr. Robert Shock, and uh, we're super thrilled about it. But first, how's it going tonight, Graham, with the new pop filter? Hey, buddy, I'm doing good. Yeah, excited tonight. I met, uh, I met Robert Shock at Paradigm 2013, so I'm pretty jazzed to be catching up with him here. So Dr. Uh, Robert Shock is no stranger to bucking the mainstream paradigm. He got his uh, start fighting this good battle over 20 years ago with the Great Sphinx and has been researching ancient mysteries all over the globe ever since. He's been tying together threads of geological and astronomical phenomena, natural catastrophes, and the early history of civilization. With a PhD in geology and geophysics, Masters of Science and Philosophy from Yale, a BA and BS in Anthropology from George Washington. How has he had the time to be a full-time faculty member at Boston University, along with writing and co-authoring many books, such as the, para parapsychologic the Parapsychology Revolution? That's a concise anthology of paranormal and, and psychical research, and his latest book, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. So we're super excited here tonight. Robert, welcome to Grimerica. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, I met you at uh, Paradigm 2013, saw your fascinating presentation. Um, it looked like you had a ton of content. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you did a real good job at, at <laughs> squeezing that into like an hour and 15 or an hour and a half presentation. So rather than, rather than go back over some of the stuff you've talked about for like 20 years, I thought I'd ask you, like, what's new? Because you seem to be uh, delving into all these different areas. So, so what's new with your research these days? I am. I am. In fact, the uh, newest thing that I'd like to talk about since you and I spoke at Paradigm Symposium, that was, I believe, in October, correct? Mm -hmm. October 13. In December, I was invited. Actually, I guess I was invited in November. And I went in December. My wife, Katie and I were invited to Indonesia, to West Java, the island of Java, West Java, Indonesia, to see this incredible site called Gunan Padang. And this fits right in with the things I was talking about at Paradigm Symposium, the topics I discussed in Forgotten Civilization, namely what we have at Gunan Padang in Indonesia is another megalithic site but not just another megalithic site from ancient times, but incredibly ancient. The Indonesian geologist who is heading up the research at the site has been doing seismic work. They have done core samples. They've got radiocarbon dates. I had the opportunity to explore the site for myself for a day in his company. We discussed it. And what is indisputable right now is that all the evidence indicates first it is a genuine megalithic human-made site mm -hmm. secondly it goes back to the end of the last ice age <laughs> just Gebekli Tepe just like the core body of the Sphinx so we've got this in Indonesia now too and it goes back to before the ice age collapsed before the end of the last ice age and like Gebekli Tepe it straddles the end of the last ice age so you see evidence there before the ice age ended and after the ice age ended and what was happening to humans at so that time is there anything to these uh, these rumors of possibly some some pyramids uh, in 
in uh, Crimea? I well, I'm not sure about Crimea at this point. You know, I I'm in a situation where I really don't want to speak uh, speak about sites unless I've actually seen them. Right. As I've seen it go both ways. <laughs> and, yeah, I'll be blunt. And this is something I don't think I spoke about Paradigm Symposium, at least not publicly. For instance, a lot of people have heard about the so-called pyramids in Bosnia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, where, can, we can get into that later if you want. <laughs> but, but we can get into that later if you want, but I want to be blunt right now because it ties in with uh, what we're talking about. Okay. I went there. I hope that we would have ancient structures in Bosnia. They were being touted as being 10,000, 12,000 years old, which would put them at this earlier, early period, end of the last ice age. I went there only to find that in my assessment, and I don't want to get into it now unless you want to get into it later, they are not genuine. Mm -hmm. It is a fraud. It's, um, you know, it's a scam that's being put on by certain people we won't mention right now. Now, I went to Indonesia with my wife, Katie, in December. Danny Hillman is a PhD geologist and geophysicist. He was trained actually out in California, so very good credentials. But still, I went there. I did not know what to expect because, again, from experience, I go to sites. In some cases, it's a real thing. In some cases, it's absolute fraud and nonsense. In other cases, it's ambiguous. For instance, Yanaguni in Japan, I still put in the somewhat ambiguous part. Uh -huh. But getting back to Ganon Padang in Indonesia, I am convinced, based on what I saw with my own eyes, the evidence that I was able to examine, that this is the real thing. This is an ancient megalithic site going back to this very early period, end of the last ice age. So can you give us a, just a little summary of the visual, like, like try and yeah. picture this, uh, this site in our heads? Yeah, I was hoping you would ask that. What you have at Gunan Padang is different than some of the other sites. It's most similar to a site in Micronesia, which some people may know about, Nan Madal. What you have at Gunan Padang is an ancient volcanic lava bed. So some people are familiar with uh, what's it called, Devil's Tower or Giant's Causeway. Mm hmm these are sites where you have ancient lavas that would solidify, you know, because a lava starts as a molten rock, a magma. It hardens and crystallizes. When ancient lavas do this, they often form natural columns, columns that stand vertically. So okay. Vertical columns. This is what you have at Ganon Padang, but that's what they started with. At Ganon Padang, ancient people separated all these vertically standing columns. So they sort of, um, I don't know if you want to call it mine them exactly. Well, it was type of mining, type of quarrying of these columns because they separate them out along the natural fractures. So they ended up with these big chunks of rock that were sort of like, you could think of um, logs, sort of stone logs. Mm -hmm. And then they use them and they rearrange them horizontally as if you were building as if you were building a log cabin. Okay. On a huge scale. So this is, you know, um, hundreds of meters in extent when you look at the entire site. They use these 
basaltic, the type of basalt. Columns used them as if they were huge logs, and they built essentially what looks like a step pyramid, to um, put it simplistically. So a step pyramid type structure made out of these naturally occurring basaltic logs, we'll call them. Hmm. And it was uh, in like a temple type thing or? Uh... may have been a temple type thing. It's oriented toward another mountain, which we were told has been for a long time, you know, in recent history. But when I, when I say recent history, stretching back the last few thousand years, as far as anyone can remember, as far as current legends go, it was oriented toward or the site is oriented toward another mountain that's been considered sacred as long as anyone can remember. Hmm. There's also a well at the bottom of Gunan Padang that now has a tradition. When I say now has a tradition, we don't know how long that tradition goes back, but there's a tradition of people sort of purifying themselves at the well before they go up to the top of the site. Hmm. That's the thing. So there's a lot of interesting things going on, but what actually is most interesting to me as a geologist and looking at ancient civilizations is that at Gunan Padang, Danny Hillman and his group, that's the Indonesian geologist who is studying it and invited me to come and view it, he has identified five major layers from top to bottom going down. So stratigraphic layers, or you could think of as occupation layers. He has modeled these and gotten sort of cross sections through the structure using seismic techniques, using ground penetrating radar, using different types of geophysical techniques where you can model and you can essentially like an x-ray see what's inside it. Hmm. And so he's been able to define that very well. He has then taken cores. He's bored down into it in several places, taken cores. He has gotten from those cores not just rock samples, but also uh, samples of organic material that can be dated. And the oldest habitation of it may go back to about 20,000 years ago. There's a major layer that was being occupied and used at about... Um, 12,000 years ago, so that's the very end of the last ice age. And then there's later occupation layers, I'll call them, or later building layers that come up to the relatively recent times, you know, last couple of thousand years. Uh -huh. Now, inside it, he was also able to model inside, very similar to what I did decades ago now with Thomas DeBecky, we did seismic studies around the base of the Great Sphinx as part of my initial research there. I was looking at subsurface weathering and uh, mineralogical changes to help date the oldest portions of the Sphinx. Danny Hillman has done the same type of um, studies now with his colleagues at the Sphinx, we found, lo and behold, a chamber under the left paw, which mm -hmm. to, the, to this day has not been entered. Danny Hillman found a major chamber inside Gunan Padang, inside this structure, plus what looked like in the seismic sections, and he and I studied them together on site, looked like two sort of secondary chambers on each side of it. So there's indications that there's a actual interior structure to it consisting of 
probably one large chamber, a couple of smaller chambers. Plus, he's been able to identify what looks like the entrance to these chambers on the side of Ganon Padang, on one side of it. And this entrance seems to have been used or was accessible up until the end of the last ice age. And then after that, there's collapse and it's covered over and it's now covered over by several meters of um, rock and debris. Wow. But it sure looks like they were going into this chamber at the end of the last ice age, which to me is really significant because of what I believe was happening based on the geological evidence, the catastrophes, the disasters, the solar outbursts, which I talk about in my book, Forgotten Civilization, that there were all these things happening on the surface of the Earth. One way to escape it, seek refuge, would be to go underground, to um, go into large stone structures that would be protective, that type of thing. And I found this elsewhere. And here we have it, Indonesia, in Indonesia, once again, so the same scenario. To me, it's building up the same story. It's um, complementing other data uh, that we have around the world. And it's not telling a different story. It's, it's telling essentially the same story, and, which and, is a worldwide story. And, and that story is that, that civilization or some sort of uh, modern civilization was around before the ice age. I'm yes. trying to, cause I can't wrap Sometimes I can't wrap my head around like oh, it's very hard it, to wrap your head around. And I can tell you why, because we all were trained. We've all been indoctrinated. If I could put it that way, Yeah. you have to think in terms of what is the standard paradigm? What is the standard story? The standard story that I was taught as an undergraduate, that I was taught in graduate school, that is taught, you know, to little kids in elementary school, et cetera, is that civilization is relatively new. What do I mean by that? Civilization, in any sense of the word, only goes back about 5,000 years at the most, about 3,000 to 4,000 BC. You have the earliest civilizations. And you have the earliest forms of writing, you have the early Egyptian civilization, you have the early uh, civilization of Sumeria, Sumer, and the um, Mesopotamia. And that civilization really begins about 3,500 BC, just to put a number on it. Yeah. What we're talking about is 10,000 BC and earlier. According to the standard view, the conventional paradigm, at that point, humans were just simple um, hunter-gatherers, as the archaeologists right. like to call them. They were just scrounging around, you know, maybe living in caves. They got the skins thrown over them to fight the cold at the end of the last ice age. Uh, you know, they're killing a woolly mammoth here and there, whatever. They're otherwise, you know, pretty miserable existence, just, you know. Moping kind of, around. Yeah, to get whatever they can just to survive. They're certainly not building megalithic monuments. They're certainly not uh, developing civilization. But what I'm finding around the world and my colleagues now, other people are finding, as in Indonesia, as in Egypt with the earliest um, you know, evidence of the Great Sphinxes, structures associated with that, as we have now in southeastern Turkey, a site 
at the site called the Beckley Tepe, mm -hmm. finding that there was what I call true civilization, sophisticated culture, building megalithic structures, incredible monumental stonework, incredible sculptures, symbolic notation, maybe even writing. We don't have enough evidence to say that definitively. But there was a real high culture, a real civilization before the end of the last Ice Age, circa 10,000 B.C., the Ice Age ended really abruptly. We now know that geologically, based on ice cores and sediment cores and you know analysis of lots of data. How do you go from very cold climate to very warm climate? That's been a big problem. My answer, based on the evidence, is that there was a major solar eruption, a major solar outburst, which essentially, as one popular article, not my words, another popular article said, fried the earth. It caused climates to go, um, you know, to warm up very quickly, melted glaciers, releasing pressure that would have set off volcanic and earthquake activity, uh, major solar outbursts would knock out the ozone layer temporarily, it would actually cause um, uh, forest fires, it would... Um, if you're melting all these glaciers so quickly, it would put a lot of water into the atmosphere. It would cause flooding, incredible flooding and and rains. And, you know, think of Noah's rains and all that type of thing. As you're melting the glaciers, ice level, um, you know, ice levels are going down high latitudes. Sea levels are going up. What was the um, Sphinx? The, the characteristic of the Sphinx that got me started on all this was the rain weathering on the Sphinx. Now, I think we have a good reason as to why it shows such incredible erosion by rain and water, uh, even though it's on the edge of the Sahara Desert, but the Sahara Desert's only about 5,000 years old. Hmm. So, so bottom line is we have incredible civilization. I'm, I hate to, I, I hope I'm not sounding too excited about this. but No, no, it's great. <laughs> important story and we need to learn from it we have high sophisticated civilization 10,000 BC there's this incredible natural disaster which ends the last ice age and basically ends these this civilization are these civilizations if you want to think of different parts of it around the world and it knocks them into a dark age it I hate to say it it probably killed a lot of people uh, some people survive. They sort of eat out living for thousands of years until, you know, civilization essentially re-emerged 5,000 years ago. So what everyone used to think, or a lot of people still think, is the beginning of civilization. It's not. It's a re-emergence of civilization. And the ancient Egyptians and most other people, ancient people, uh, the ancient Egyptians themselves said, no, they did not originate. They did not originate civilization. It was a legacy from thousands and thousands and thousands of years earlier. Wow. That leads to so many questions. But but yeah. first of all, how how long then was the Ice Age supposed to be like? Was it uh, if, if you look geologically, if you're talking about the last series, the last Ice Age? Yeah, it's really the Pleistocene. You're talking about two million years ago to. 12,000 years ago, rough numbers. Uh, end, end of the last ice age, 
is dated very precisely geologically to about 9700 BC. So that's, um, you know, right, yeah. 11,700 years ago, but the beginning of the ice ages, because it was a series of glaciations and interglacials, begins about 2 million years ago. Okay, but, but, but where was the beginning of the last stretch? Like the one that ended 9,700? It's actually an interesting question because there's something called the Younger Dryas, yeah. and I talk about this for more, in more detail in the book, Forgotten Civilization, for those that want to go there. But the Younger Dryas ends in 9700 BC. It starts about um, 1200 years, <clears throat> 1200 years earlier, say 10,900 BC. That's it. Wow. 10,900 BC to 9,700 BC, you have what's called the Younger Dryas. And interestingly, that was actually a period that was colder than the immediately preceding period of the ice age. So it was cold all along, but it suddenly got much colder, about 10,900 BC. And then it continued sort of, you know, really cold till 9,700 BC, when all of a sudden it got really warm again. And I want to point out that there's probably, well, there are, explanations for both why it got colder 10,900 BC, even against the background cold of the Ice Age, and then suddenly got very warm 9,700 BC. Hmm. 10,900 BC, there's a lot of evidence that a comet may have hit the Earth or exploded in the atmosphere. And a comet hitting or exploding in the atmosphere would throw up lots of dust, particulate matter, that type of thing, which would have a cooling effect. And apparently that happened, or there's lots of good evidence that happened about 10,900 BC. And then the warming at 9,700 BC, about 1,200 years later, as I said, I think all the evidence indicates that that was a major solar outburst. So that's due to solar activity the sun is there any record of like has it been as warm it is as it is now back in the day like yes yes well at, actually right after as far as we know probably right after the ice age ended when i say right after i'm talking geo geologically the uh centuries that type mm -hmm. of centuries millennia what you had and we know this from isotope data, so this is not just, you know, pie in the sky, make-believe. We have good isotope data, which um, can, I talk about in Forgotten Civilization, beryllium isotopes, that type of thing, which are correlated with solar activity. So we have proxies, as they're called. We have indicators of solar activity. Solar activity was very high at the end of the last ice age, the sun was very, very variable. So it went through sort of mood swings of, you know, being really active, then it would calm down and not be very active at all. Then it would get really active again. So it was very variable, uh, probably in a state of disequilibrium astrophysically. Eventually, you know, maybe 2,000 years after the end of the last ice age, it sort of calmed down and became more stable and was more stable, lower activity for thousands of years, right up until 
you know, relatively recent times, the last couple of thousand years. Now, in the last hundred years, especially the last few decades and right now, it's become very, very active again and also become very moody if you want to talk anthropologically or anthropomorphically, I should say, where it becomes very active, then it um, seems to go dormant. You may have heard some people talk about it looks like it's going into a dormant period. Yeah, yeah. Very active again. I mean, it's it's very unpredictable now. It seems to be in a part of a cycle, and something I believe we can start to talk about now is cycles of the sun, not just a sunspot cycle of 11 years or 22 years. There are known cycles of a few hundred years. There's a cycle of about 5,000 years. And I also believe there's a cycle on the order of about 12 to 13,000 years where it becomes very variable, sort of disequilibrium that has to re-equilibriate itself, you know, go back into equilibrium astrophysically and stays relatively calm for a while but builds up energy inside, basically builds up, um, you know, uh, complexities, if you would, and then it has to recalibrate itself, if you would. Yeah. Uh, and we're at that stage right now, as we were at the end of the last Ice Age. So, to me, this is not just studying ancient civilizations, because they're fun to study and interesting, but have no real applicability to life today. I think they have a lot of applicability, because we may well be due for a major solar outburst, which would be you know, catastrophic to modern civilization, just as it was to that very early civilization 12,000 years ago. Hmm. Probably be worse for us. We're pretty soft these days. <laughs> soft. Electro electronic, electronically soft. <laughs> so, Robert, Sorry. I was looking at a few of the pictures in your, in your book, Forgotten Civilization. And uh, you've, well, you've been to both Gobekli Tepe and Easter yep. Island. And I think it's like the, the, the way the fingers are on the, on the pillars, it's pretty hard to, uh, like those look, did they look that similar in, in real life as they do in the pictures? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, even more so in real life, I would say. Yeah. Uh, for those that haven't been to these sites, I have, as you know, in the book, 16 pages of color photo inserts. Um, and Katie and I, my wife, were really struck in real life, how similar these are, the connections, we think they all connect together with the fingers and the hands down by the belly and the navel area. Uh, just a lot of weird stuff that you wouldn't expect otherwise. And also, for instance, uh, uh, Eartha Man, which is from Turkey and dates back to that same period, that this early period doesn't have legs, just like the Moai, the heads and torsos on East Island don't have legs, so they're just showing the upper part of the body. Just a lot of, lot of similarities. Mm. <laughs> we like, yeah. uh, we, one of the Easter Island, the Moai, how do you pronounce it, Moai? Moai, Moai. Yeah, yeah we, we use that as our little mascotty kind of hey. thing, so hey, we're fascinated you, by Easter Island. Looking at it, the uh, Moai with what, headphones on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they have big ears. <laughs> <laughs> so are you going to plan, you're planning on going back there to East Island at some point? Uh, hopefully, yeah. I've been there a couple of times. We've been there a couple of times and we want to go back. 
there's a lot more to learn on East Rotterdam. One thing that I hypothesize, and Katie actually pointed this out first, is that Easter Island may have been a repository of ancient knowledge, if you would. In particular, they had what's known as the Rango Rango script. And unfortunately, with the missionaries and you know Westerners coming to the island in the 18th and 19th century, a lot of the records were destroyed. This is a common theme, it seems. Mm-hmm. But they had what's known as a Rango Rango script, which is sort of a hieroglyphic script. But um, Katie first pointed out that it looks remarkably like what you would have seen based on uh, reconstructions by scientists, in particular, particular a fellow named Dr. Anthony Parat, who is with Los Alamos National Laboratories. He's a plasma physicist. He has done decades of work reconstructing what you would see in the sky, what the effects would be of a major solar outburst. And one thing you would see would be what would look like figures in the sky. Uh, I'm sure people are familiar with the northern lights, the aurora borealis. Well, you would have seen things like that, but much more distinctive at lower latitudes. In fact, they'd be seen around the world. Some people who have seen the aurora borealis, even in present day, have pointed out it can look like hands in the sky or it can look like uh, sort of stick figures, that type of thing. And you find on ancient petroglyphs around the world these definitive markings, which Dr. Parat believes, and I am convinced by him, and then my, you know, seeing them for myself and looking at them, that people were recording with these very ancient petroglyphs going back to the end of the last ice age, what they were seeing in the sky during a major solar outburst. The Rongo Rongo script seems to have been recording the same thing initially, what you would see in the sky. So in a sense, they were making a record in a very real sense, a record or a text of what you would see in the sky during a major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age, maybe recording it for posterity. Uh, maybe they were recording it so that they would know what signs to look for if it would happen again. Wow. And then there's possible evidence of um, uh, the basalt quarries, I believe, being actually yep. underwater at Easter yep. Island, which would point to uh, to a sudden rise in water as well. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what you're talking about is you have the moai on the island, the oldest moai, and I say that 
with real evidence because geologically things that are older are lower stratigraphically. You know, think of an archaeological site. When you dig down, as you go deeper, it's older. Mm-hmm. And these basalt moai, the most beautifully carved moai made out of the hardest rock basalt versus the volcanic tufts, which is what most of the moai are made out of, which is a softer rock. The basalt ones are the oldest one. They're found stratigraphically under the other ones. They're made out of harder rock. They're, um, frankly, better carved. But that's not unusual. In many archaeological sites you find, like Egypt, some of the most beautiful carvings, the most refined carvings, are actually the oldest ones in dynastic Egypt. Uh, these basalt moai are known from the island, but they haven't found the actual quarries on the island. Jacques Cousteau and his team, when he was diving there some decades ago, he identified what may be quarries underwater. But with if they go back to the end of the last ice age, as I believe, they would have been, of course, above water with lower sea levels. Wow. Hmm. So, yes. Yeah, so again, this is indicative that things are a lot older on Easter Island the, than conventional archaeologists and historians suggest. Uh, just to put it in context, classical, conventional, I'll put it that way, conventional archaeologists don't even suggest that Easter Island was populated by humans before about 1,500 years ago. So they think it's very recent, which is just crazy from my point of view. Yeah, yeah. Theological point of view. And I've even found a few academic papers that have had the gumption to say, no, there's actually evidence that uh, there were people on Easter Island at least a few thousand years earlier than that. I think we're probably talking, you know, 10,000 years mm-hmm. there. Uh, and the basalt moai would indicate that. The fact that some of the uh, tough moai, the the toughest uh, type of um, volcanic rock, they are buried in up to six meters of sediment, buried up to their chin. Not unlike your little um, logo there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, buried up uh, to their shoulders or chin. Every time they've excavated those, they find not the legs, but the full body down to... um, essentially where the beginning of the legs would be. So how do the, how do you figure they they actually did that then? Did they like haul those things up, stand them up and then carve them in place kind of? Um no no, you can see in the quarries when you go to Easter Island, you can actually see some in the quarries that were not finished and they were carving them generally they would carve them in the quarries and they were lying on their backs. So oh. uh, I have pictures. I think I have a picture of the book in one of them lying on his back, but they would carve them lying, lying on their backs. Uh-huh. And uh, then they would free them from the rock and they would probably sort of slide or roll them out and get them to where they needed to wreck them. And then they would raise them up. Not unlike the obelisks in Egypt, because mm-hmm. there's some obelisks that are still not totally carved in the quarry. They carved them, uh, you know, horizontally and then raised them vertically. Oh, yeah, right, right. Huh. Actually, I'm looking at the book, and uh, for those who have the book or get in the future on plate 21, uh, uh, 
in the sort of the middle of that picture, you can see one of the unfinished ones lying on his back. Oh yeah, we got it right here. Yeah. That's yeah, good. Good. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but I mean, these are incredibly sophisticated, and you're talking, you know, the average moai weighs tens of tons, so this is not insignificant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I I don't mean to make fun of anyone, but we're there and we're talking to one of the archaeologists on the island and he has explained to us the standard story should we say and he you know shows us how you know with a couple of crude rocks they went chip 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 and chip them out and then um i think a friend of ours asked why did they do this etc and says oh busy work (laughs) so the chiefs wanted to keep the people busy so they wouldn't cause trouble wow that's a sort of a ridiculous answer. <laughs> hey, before before I forget to ask you um, about these visual phenomena that you think might happen during a solar uh, mm-hmm. outburst, was there any news or any uh, evidence that that happened during the Carrington event at all? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. The Carrington event, for those that don't know what it was, was 1859 and i believe the carrington event is part of the cycle we're in the sort of the broader cycle we're in because if you think geologically 1859 is not not very long ago yeah and at in 1859 we have the carrington event what is that it was a solar outburst i was about to say major solar outburst but it really was not major from an astrophysical point of view (laughs) It was larger than anything humans have experienced for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, but not huge from an astrophysical point of view. During the Carrington event, there were a couple of really big solar flares, bigger than anything we've seen since people have been recording it in the last hundred, you know, since the Carrington event, in the last 150 plus years. A couple of big solar flares. There were a couple of coronal mass ejections, that is plasma or charged particles coming from the sun. They hit the earth. They caused all kinds of light, if you would, or features in the sky. And people described what they interpreted as or sort of anthropomorphized as stick figures dancing in the sky. They described exactly what the Rongo Rongo looks like exactly what um, the petroglyphs that Dr. Parat has identified as um, being, you know, what people would see in the sky during major solar outbursts. This was described by eyewitnesses during the Carrington event. Now, unfortunately, it was 1859. Yes, there was photography, but not at the level that could capture these at night. Right. You know, they were they would have been very bright to the human eye, but beyond photographic means uh, at the time, to the best of my knowledge. Some people did do drawings of them, and there are some drawings of them, uh, but lots of, um, you know, descriptions of them, talking about them being dancing figures in the sky. That's how people viewed them. And I also wanted to mention Carrington event was not major. From an astrophysical point of view, from a human perspective, it was major. 1859, there's not a lot of electronics around. They did have the telegraph. Some people don't realize that. The telegraph was fairly um, 
in, in Western countries uh, was being developed. There were already, you know, thousands and thousands of kilometers or miles, you can use either term, of telegraph lines set up. So it was being used. And when the Carrington event hit, it overpowered the telegraph lines. It fried them literally. It burnt down telegraph um, stations almost electrocuted uh, some of the operators, fortunately none of them were killed. But it caused real damage to the telegraph system, but life went on because, you know, who was using the telegraph system? Two really rich, wealthy, you know, businessmen, that type of thing. The point is, and, and also I want to point out that the telegraph system back in 1859 was much more robust, could take a lot more beating than our electronic systems of today. So if we had a Carrington event in 1859, you know, it would just knock out electrical grid systems. It would knock out telecommunications. It would probably literally fry um, the computer I'm talking to you through huh. right now. Because there was probably, we don't know for certain, but with the Carrington event, there was probably what was known as a proton event, where you have you know these uh, protons and other charged particles at very high speed penetrating. It's just that we don't know for 1859 because there were no electronics that could record that at the time. And no electronics, you know, like we have now, that would have been destroyed by it. What about uh, people? Like, what about me and you? Do we get, does that wreck us up too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that anyone's been able to do any real studies of it, but probably cause uh, genetic mutations, increase cancer rates, uh, knock out, um, knock out a good chunk of the, um, uh, uh, atmosphere in the sense of uh, the ozone layer. People know about the ozone layer, letting more UV radiation, uh, uh, change uh, the properties of the atmosphere, the electrical properties in particular, change the density of the atmosphere, which is important for satellites, for instance. So it would lock, literally put satellites out of their proper orbits, but they would be fried anyway, the electronics in them. That must have been a heads up to the elite, like the rich people who were using the telegraph system back then, that how, vul- how vulnerable we are. Vulnerable it is, but look at us now. We are much more vulnerable, and most people have forgotten. Yeah, yeah except uh, for the elite. Uh, uh, except for the ones building underground facilities everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 of course. I mean, you've got you to know that um, certain governments and certain rich private organizations and we don't want to go into uh, the um, secret societies or whatnot populated by elite people who are taking care of themselves and not talking about this publicly. Um, and, you know, of course, I'm not saying there's conspiracies. No, no. But, you know, I have learned that even though I'm not a conspiracy theorist, some conspiracies are real. Yeah, exactly. So, um, is, so it could, does uh, it like build up to it? Like, would we see it coming or would it just be no, like, boom, no, one day the glaciers are melting and shit is going well, down? Unfortunately, based on my opinion of the data and what we've seen in the past, we would, if people are watching the sun and Katie in our household, my wife, 
pays attention, very close attention to the sun on a daily basis, you know, what reports you can get off the internet and whatnot, and, you know, solar flares, that type of thing. You would probably have a major solar flare coming from a sunspot group, and then you would have a coronal mass ejection. Now, the sun light travels very quickly, so you would see the solar flare before the plasma, the coronal mass ejection, hits Earth. But the time delay would be on the order of, you know, anywhere from 18 hours to 40 hours. So you wow. don't have a lot of time to prepare. If you haven't made preparations already, you know, yeah. forget yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Did I just get like a snorkel? It, and hang out in the water? <laughs> no, the way to survive it are the best preparations to go underground. Yeah. And we see at the end of the last ice age, a lot of extinctions of large mammals, for instance. It may be because of this. Oh. Uh, a fellow I know, um, a very good physicist, uh, you may have heard of him, Dr. Paul LaVioletta has done analysis and calculations of radiation levels on the surface of the Earth during a major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age. He's tried to model it specifically for the end of the last ice age. And in certain areas, maybe globally, radiation levels may have been so high that it could kill large mammals after just a few days. We are large mammals. But... Um, some humans, and I believe there's now more and more evidence for this, were able to escape by going into caves, that type of thing. How long does it last? Like, do you just have to go in there for underground for a couple of days or a couple yeah, of weeks? Actually, the probably the major, if the Carrington event is any indication, you'd have the major event would last a week or so. Then things would calm down again. But if the sun is very variable and going through this, it would sort of be... You can use the analogy of earthquakes. I'm a geologist. Where you have a major earthquake, then you have smaller ones after that, or you might have a few smaller ones leading up to it. So, you know, you can get a series, and you, you just like an earthquake, it could happen. Then it seems like everything's calm. Then the sun spits out again. So you'd get like a bright light, and then you know you got to get back to your cave. Exactly, that type of thing. That's still well, that's a long time. Bad. That's worth it. Like, if I get to go underground for, like, 10 years or something, then no, no, there wouldn't be a just take me out. Something like that, it would be in spurts. And you'd have to go down, and you could survive a certain, you know, uh, amount of radiation, that type of thing. But if you're staying out in the open, if you're a big mammoth, think of a big mammoth, it can't go into a cave. It can't escape. What can escape smaller animals, and that's just what we see. Ah. Animals that burrow, things that go into caves, that go underground naturally, that can hide in rocks. And this gets back to structures, too. I was talking about Gunan Padang. Maybe that you could think of that as a natural cave or a natural structure. Um, or not, I'm sorry, not a natural cave. I meant the other way around, an artificial yeah, cave. Yeah. It's just a natural cave. And also... Uh, think about what survives a major solar outburst, which would include in some cases, and this was discussed as early as the 1960s by uh, astrophysicist Thomas Gold, who is now deceased, and people sort of laughed at him at the time. He was talking about how there could be a major solar outburst, and 
essentially what would look like big bolts of lightning would penetrate down and hit the surface of the earth in some places and uh, set forest fires, cause literal incineration of things on the surface, in some cases would melt rock, you know, the surface layers of rock, and then it would re-solidify what's known as vitrification because it forms a type of natural glass. We're now finding evidence of this around the world at the end of the last ice age. Hmm. So what would survive such harsh conditions? Big stone structures. What do we find more than anything else is big stone megalithic structures. That's what survived. Hmm. I mean, that's all the people had back then, but that's all that survives. Right. Um, we today's rate, to us today, we wouldn't have anything survive. They just find <laughs> all that shit again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, what would survive the same harsh um, catastrophe in today's society? Virtually nothing. Wow. So speaking of that place in Indonesia again, was it lined? Did you guys, uh, to see if it was measured or orientated to any celestial or astronomical uh, um, orientations? I, I- I've got some data on it, but I haven't, um, I just, uh, to be honest, we were there in December, and I haven't had a chance to really, you know, do any analysis along those lines yet. Yeah, that seems to be another common thread in a lot of those things, eh? And I won't be, well, I, I don't want to speak until I've done it, but what we have found uh, in terms of orientations is that my colleague Robert Duval, you may have heard of his work, or the listeners may have heard of his work, he uh, did what's known as the Ryan correlation on the Giza Plateau. Mm-hmm. The Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, Third Pyramid mimic Orion's belt. Mm-hmm. They're aligned to Orion. They correlate with Orion. Furthermore, the alignment is best about 10,000, 10,500 B.C. Oh, yeah, right. End of the last ice age. Yeah. At the same time, I pointed out that the Sphinx or the Proto-Sphinx which existed, not the current Sphinx, because the current Sphinx has a human head, and that head is a recarved head. So I think it was a, a lion, a male lion originally. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that early period, end of the last ice age, just after the end of the last ice age, the Sphinx would have faced Leo in the sky on the vernal equinox. So it would have looked at its own image, if you would, and at that period, not at later periods. So I think, you know, there's something to these alignments at the end of the last ice age, that period at the Giza Plateau in Egypt, Gebekli Tepe. I have had a chance to do analysis of uh, alignments, potential alignments at Gebekli Tepe, the site in southeastern Turkey. And that, I also found, was aligned to the region of the sky, Orion, at the end of the last ice age. So there seems to be a commonality there. Yeah, and wasn't there even some correlation with the precession of the equinox at Gobekli Tepe? Exactly. It's actually much stronger, in my opinion, in some ways, the alignment that we find at Gobekli Tepe, because the four major enclosures, these rings of stone circles that have been... Uh, excavated by Klaus Schmidt, the German archaeologist who's heading up the excavation, when I ran analysis of them, they are all aligned to Orion, but they shift gradually over about a 2,000-year period 
due to precession, precession of the equinoxes, this shift of the stars in the sky, this very slow shift to stay in alignment to Orion. So to me, that's a very powerful argument that they really are aligning these structures. Secondly, this is not unsophisticated to have to do this. Uh, the classical archaeologists will generally tell you that no one even acknowledged precession because it's so, quote, subtle mm-hmm. till you know, 2,000 to 3,000 years ago at the most. But here we see them realigning their structures 10,000 plus years ago, taking precession into account. And how long does it take to learn that? Yeah, even, yeah. Right? Exactly. And well, that's another point. What we're looking at, I believe, at the end of the last ice age, civilization, true civilization, this is the culmination of what must have been civilization, you know, leading up to that period, 10,000 BC. It's not, didn't just occur 10,000 BC and then disappear. There must have been a long time. Yeah, you because know. you need civilization to be talking about the procession of the equinox. Like, yeah. you're not walking around the bush in a tribe thinking, huh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think, you know, I'm not, you know, some people misinterpret me, including my critics. I'm not saying that classical archaeologists got it all wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm just that they've been looking at the end of a cycle, and what they've been calling the first civilizations is not, they're not the first civilizations. They're just um, a reemergence of civilization and civilization itself goes back much much earlier now before do, do that think, rea- do you think we could be like 20 civilizations 30th oh well, you mean cycles of civilization yeah like we've already been flying around and like maybe if we land on a different spot on the moon we're going to find some different looking flag <laughs> earlier civilization um no i mean seriously uh some, this is something I've thought about a lot. A lot of the classical civilizations, when I say classical, you know, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they, as I mentioned already, talk about earlier civilizations, thousands of years earlier. They talk about cycles of civilization. The Hindus, for instance. Like the Yugas or whatever? The Yuga cycle. The, what were you going to say? Yeah, the Yugas. Yeah, the Yugas, the Yugas, the concept that there have been cycles of civilization that we go through in Western terms, uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron age, then we start over again. Something we didn't mention yet in this conversation, but I think is apropos here, is Atlantis. The Mm -hmm. concept of Atlantis, that came from Plato immediately, but where did he get it from? He got it from his relative who got it from Egypt. The concept that there was Atlantis, which was a very sophisticated civilization, which goes back thousands of years and and was destroyed, and that the ancient Egyptians, among others, were the descendants of Atlanteans, if you would. More or less, they had inherited and then built upon the Atlantean knowledge. Or... To put it in more um, academic terms, they had inherited and built upon knowledge from a preceding civilization, a civilization much earlier. And I want to make one point about Atlantis. Plato writes about Atlantis in great detail, 
I'm not personally so worried about, you know, finding where Atlantis is geographically or if his descriptions of Atlantis are accurate in terms of technology and what they had. What I think is really important, at least to my research, is his dating of Atlantis. Hmm. And he talks about Atlantis very specifically in terms of when it was destroyed, when it uh, collapsed. And when you turn his account into modern chronology, years B.C., he come, it comes to 9600 B.C. Oh, wow. And the best geological evidence is the Ice Age collapsed about 9700 B.C. A hundred years is nothing. Yeah. I think basically Plato is incredibly accurate when he's dating this earlier civilization, which he calls Atlantis. And we're talking about um, the collapse of civilization at the end of the last ice age. What if it could be like Atlantis was just their word for Earth? Yeah, exactly. It could be. It could be. Atlantis <laughs> basically a word for Earth or for advanced civilization. Yeah. On, like whatever on, we call ourselves, I guess, Earthlings, Earth. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think it's almost a false... Um, it, it, what you might call the red herring or something, you know, people that are so intent upon finding the geographic location of Atlantis. I'm not sure that's the, um, uh, really where the emphasis could, should be. Maybe could be not, multiple ones. Yeah. Atlantis is a way cooler name. than Earth. Could be all over the place. Really. Could be all over the place. It is interesting though. And maybe this is all coincidental, but Atlantis is described as, uh, the city of Atlantis versus the civilization of Atlantis. The city of Atlantis is described as having a ring-type structure, you know, inner rings and outer rings. Mm -hmm. You see a Gebekli Tepe. You see stone circles, stone enclosures with rings within rings. Mm. So maybe that's only coincidental, but I think it's sort of interesting. What do you, what do you think about um, people that have talked about the our Hmm. our ancestors or people at that time traversing the globe, like all the commonalities you've seen between the megalithic sites. Like some people say that they were, they were traveling around by boat, uh, you know, all across the world back then. I, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I've talked about that myself. Um, um, you know, I want people to buy forgotten civilization, my latest book. Uh, yeah. I could plug in for that forgotten civilization, the role of solar outbursts in our past and future. But some years ago, I think it was well, more than 10 years ago now, I wrote a book called Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, which talks explicitly about connections around the world mm. in very ancient times. I mean, long before Columbus, there's, you know, there's lots of evidence that long before Columbus, people were traversing the Atlantis, Atlantis, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, that people were traveling around the world, whether it was always purposeful, whether it was uh, people doing it sporadically, you know, you can argue about that. But to me, there's undeniable evidence that uh, people were globetrotting thousands of years ago, and we hit upon it earlier. I think it goes back even further now when we start seeing similarities between Easter Island and, you know, Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, and we're finding the same um, scenarios, if you would, in Indonesia. So 
Part of it, they might have been influenced, influenced by the same catastrophes, the same things they saw in the sky. But I also think there was probably some direct interchange or connection. Hmm. What about flying yeah. Vamanas? Hmm? Think they were flying Vamanas around? No, I don't know. I'm not sure <laughs> I didn't go there. Um, that's that, too far? That's no- yeah, that's a whole nother thing. And... Again, you know, I'm, I, I've learned not to dismiss anything at this point. <laughs> but I'm also not going to jump onto something unless I've personally studied it. Yeah. Um, I often wonder about the collective consciousness aspect of it, too. Like, sometimes things seem to, you know, travel through the consciousness as opposed to some physical communication. Right, that's right. So I think that's a, a distinct possibility, too. And you already mentioned the intro. I mean, among other interests i have serious academic interest is you know our is our parapsychology psychical research that type of thing and collective unconsciousness um uh telepathic transfer of information i mean these are real uh there's no doubt in my opinion when you look at the solid evidence get rid of all the fraud and nonsense then these types of paranormal phenomena, uh, there's something to it. So you have to play, take that into account. You also have to take into account, I believe, that when you have a major solar outburst, you change the uh, electromagnetics, you change the um, uh, the background uh, uh, Schumann resonances. I don't know if people know what that is, but... Uh, you have around the earth, this might be carrier ways for telepathic information, but it also affects our consciousness. So you have very real effects on consciousness when you start changing um, the uh, background electromagnetic um, uh, frequencies that we're all subjected to. makes you different than all these other scientists like you you came into this as a hardcore scientist right back in the the late the early 80s really like but how come you're so much more open-minded and you'll look at all this type of research without um some bias right like you're just looking at the evidence really like why why is everybody else stuck not everybody else but you know the mainstream paradigm the vast majority it's very easy to get stuck uh, the money's good to get stuck. The um, uh, academic positions are good. I mean, I've heard my career from a classical academic perspective by going into all this type of stuff. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt about this now. You know, I'm not. I'm not. You know, certain avenues maybe are um, 
not paths I could pursue. Could I have done better for myself in a sense of um, money and uh, academic prestige, you know, from the conventional point of view, mm -hmm. if I had just stuck with my specialty in geology and, um, you know, studied uh, one uh, little formation, geological formation, or one group of fossils and become the world's expert in that, but never really rocked the boat in any way or made anyone angry, you know, it, that, in some ways that's an easier path to take, if that makes sense. Uh, versus uh, being subject to all the abuse I've gotten from my academic colleagues for going out on the limb and uh, questioning their fundamental beliefs and assumptions in many cases. People don't like that. It sort of gets to be a religious type thing. People don't understand it, but for many people in the sciences, if I could put it this way, science becomes their religion, and they become just as dogmatic about it as... Um, yeah, it's funny. Eh? Well, they're making fun of like the last generation scientists for thinking all of those idiots thought this, but we've got it all figured out. Even though the guys before that, the guys before that were all. Exactly. And once they've got it all figured out, they won't um, let go of what they've, their paradigm, their worldview. And it becomes a dogma for them, even though ideally, idealistically, you're not supposed to have dogma in science. You're supposed to be open to new data. Well, the reality is scientists are humans, and they get set in their ways. They, um, they want to, uh, you know, they've made their name based on a certain theory or a certain paradigm or certain discoveries, and they don't want that overturned. Uh, they don't want to all of a sudden be told that what they believed all these years or built a career on might be wrong or even uh, you know, a little bit vulnerable to new information, to new data. So, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with sociological, psychological issues. Um, you know, speaking of humans, how you look at it. Yeah. So, so why am I different? I don't know. Maybe I'm a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that I haven't, I haven't valued sort of security monetarily and that type of thing as much as some of my colleagues do. Uh, could I have made an easier route for myself? Yes. Now, I will also be honest, I kept a lot of this to myself until I was tenured. Right. So, you know, I made sure I was at least had some level of security, but it has probably cut back. I'm sure it's cut back on, you know, my ability to work up in, through the institution, through the university, but that mm -hmm. doesn't me yeah, yeah. is important is to follow the data and to follow the evidence no matter which way it leads and frankly it cuts both ways my academic colleagues in conventional science sometimes get upset with me because i'm pushing the boundaries and you know it's 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 uh questioning their paradigms and their beliefs but it goes the other way too i have had some of the most um, caustic, I'll put it that way, comments to my face or via email or people saying horrible things about me from the other side. Because they'll tell me, how can you deny the pyramids in Bosnia? How can you say that the, there might be any question about Yanaguni, understructure, underwater structures at Yanaguni, being anything than artificial and, you know, evidence of Lemuria or Mu. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So some of the alternatives, should we say, they get just as upset with me because, you know, I don't make any exceptions. I look at the data, I say what I think, and I'm not trying to please anyone. I'm trying to really stick with the data. I mean that absolutely genuinely. So just because, you know, someone says this is the new Atlantis or, you know, this is the newest discovery, uh, you know, unless I think it uh, is legitimate, I'm not going to um, you know, endorse it. So speaking of the data and, and, and science thinking they've got it all figured out, um, we just had a, a fellow on uh, recently on our podcast talking about how we're in a, a freezing period, a global freezing period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, brought, it brings up the whole climate change thing and, and uh, kind of the yeah. battle going on right now. Like, do you have... I don't even know if uh, how to ask it really, but what's your thoughts on the whole climate change versus global warming, man-made versus natural? I can tell you. I'll tell you very bluntly. I, uh, uh, when you look at geologically, when you look at astrophysically, climate change and solar activity, changes in the sun track each other very, very consistently. So I think that most of the change in climate we see on a broad scale, you know, over thousands of years and over the ice ages, et cetera, there are some, uh, just so everyone knows if they're into this, I know about Milankovitch cycles and all that. And yes, I'm taking that into account. But, uh, and then you have things like comets, uh, which will affect it. You know, so it's a very complex system. There's a lot of things that affect climate. Mm One of the major factors is solar activity and more active sun um, versus less active sun tracks climate change, you know, very, very accurately, actually, over uh, long periods of time. And, for instance, carbon dioxide levels, yes, they change. As it gets warmer, you tend to have higher carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. But interestingly, geologically, well before humans were on the scene as industrial, you know, builders of factories and pumping out carbon dioxide and all that type of thing, what you find is that when temperature goes up, there's a little bit of a lag time, and then carbon dioxide goes up, not vice versa. So it seems that temperature comes first, then carbon dioxide levels go up. And this makes perfect sense to me geologically, because as you warm the oceans, they can hold less carbon dioxide, so they start outgassing it as you uh, melt uh, ice in high-latitude areas, you start releasing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Now, they are greenhouse gases, so once they release, they start contributing to further global warming, but they're not the major cause. They're not the primary factor, if that makes sense. Now, getting back getting to modern industrial times, since the 1980s, there may start to be a disconnect where solar activity is not the only driving factor. So I don't deny that in the last 30 years or so, there may be an anthropogenic, a human component to uh, global climate change. But again, it's not the primary factor in my assessment. And I talk about this in forgotten civilization to a certain extent. It's not the primary factor. Hmm. And I think that, you know, Scientists, and I don't care if it's 97% of scientists, as I heard recently on 
television a documentary that I hard, heartily disagreed with. Yes, go back to 1450. 100% of scientists at the time would agree, I suppose, that the uh, sun went around the earth. That doesn't make it right. You don't do science by consensus. You don't take a vote on something and then decide majority wins. That is the, quote, fact. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of politics involved with global climate change, global warming. There's a lot of vested interests that have built a career and have billions and billions and billions of dollars invested in the concept that it's primarily human caused. Uh, and I don't believe that's the case. I believe it's much more complex than that. And there's a very strong natural uh, component to it. So where do you think it's going to go in the next like five, 10 years? Is it going to start shifting over to re real data like that you're talking about? Or is it going to, you I know? Think, I just remembered something else which you had brought up and I didn't answer. Okay. Okay. First off, yeah, I'll, let me address that and then get back to the other. I hope that we start going into a period where we look at real data. And I don't want to make fun of anyone, but someone like Al Gore wins a Nobel Prize for what I think may be totally fallacious mm -hmm. reasoning. Now, it's not his fault in some sense because he was just um, mimicking or being the mouthpiece for other people who should know better in my assessment and haven't taken everything into account. But I'm hoping that we'll start looking at real data. There's something known as cosmoclimatology, which I mentioned and already discussed briefly in Forgotten Civilization, that's looking at the cosmic factors including the sun, including cosmic rays that uh, cause nucleation in the upper atmosphere, which forms little droplets, which then can form cloud cover, which has an incredible effect on surface temperatures. You know, as people don't realize this, cloud cover has a big effect. So it's not as direct as, well, the sun gets brighter or the sun is more active and then that heats up the earth. It's much more complex than that because uh, this solar output is not great enough to do it just on its own. It has to do with how much cloud cover is um, formed, how much, how many cosmic rays get into the upper atmosphere, into the ionosphere, etc. So it's a very complex situation and it's so complex I can understand in the early years of climatology people just ignored it. They couldn't understand it. But we're now at a point where you have to be looking at these things and a lot of the um, uh, experts, so-called experts on global warming, they're not looking at the whole picture. They're still stuck in this paradigm. Oh, it's humans pumping out carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases and that's what's causing uh, the earth to warm up and it's, what I'm saying is it's much more complex than that and there's a very strong uh, natural component. So I'm hoping that we'll get into a period where we can start looking at real data and forget our biases, forget our agendas and, you know, do what I've been trying to make a career of doing, looking at real data. I also wanted to say that some people think that now the sun is going dormant. We may go into a little ice age, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not convinced of that because I think if you look at the longer scale cycles, the bigger picture I was talking about, 
what we're really seeing is that the sun is becoming very variable. And when the sun gets really variable, it goes through periods of high activity, and then immediately it seems to die down and nothing's happening. But, you know, within a week or a year or a few years, a decade, it's hard to predict. All of a sudden, it could just go crazy and have major um, solar activity, major outbursts, that type of thing. What about and the data? What a- an event was the uh, metaphorical shot, was it shot across the bow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just because, you know, it's very dangerous, in my opinion, as a geologist, to look at a couple of years of data and try to make um, predictions based on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So what, what about, like, Dr. Don Easterbrook's uh, data that he, he says goes back thousands of years that shows where the, the climate goes through 30-year cycles and we're kind of right in the middle of, of one of those cycles? Oh, Have 30 you... But see, 30 years is nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. See, I'm as a geologist. I'm not. Uh, I have to look at his carefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not denying anything like that because I'm really talking about cycles that are on the order of you know five thousand years, ten, twelve thousand years, that type of thing. And that's the thing you get. Um, I don't know if you if you think of a wave visually, a wave, mm-hmm. a big wave. You can have little waves on top of it, etc. Yeah. So you have a bunch of different cycles at different levels. Yeah, almost like uh, Fibonacci. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You got uh, a bunch of different cycles at different levels. And I think we need to be preparing um, uh, uh, for, you know, uh, what's going to happen in the future. Something else is that our solar system, and this is another complication, our solar system with the sun in it, you know, it's traveling through space, mm-hmm. traveling around the galaxy. And I do mention this in Forgotten Civilization, at least briefly, uh, we go through different areas in space. We go through different positions in space. We travel around the galaxy some regions of space are denser some are less dense we run into sort of clouds of dust and debris Mm. things are happening in other suns other stars from the center of the galaxy we go through periods uh, or we go through regions as i said where there's a more density of dust and debris we get hit by cosmic rays you know uh, uh star you know who knows how many light years away, supernovas, and all of a sudden we get hit by a bunch of uh, cosmic rays or other particles from that. That affects things here on Earth. It uh, interacts with the um, atmosphere, the different layers of the atmosphere, and can have real ramifications in terms of weather and climate. And even and even personally, sometimes I wonder about like us as as uh, as people and our moods and what goes on in our brain and all these different astronomical yeah, variabilities. No question, in my opinion, based you know, I've been looking at this for a long time. Uh, it's very hard to um, uh, uh, you know predict exactly right now, but uh, we are electromagnetic. We as organisms, and we are affected by the background electromagnetics. Uh, Often you refer to geomagnetic storms. 
-hmm. So when the sun is having flares or solar outbursts, it causes geomagnetic storms in the atmosphere. Well, we are affected by that. Uh, we are very much affected by that. And I talked about this in parapsychology revolution a little bit. I talked about it in forgotten civilization a little bit. Uh, consciousness levels, um, uh, paranormal phenomena, telepathy in particular, this varies depending on uh, the geomagnetic flux that people are subjected to. There's one very good study of over a century worth of um, telepathic experiences, you know, those types of experiences that they correlate with the geomagnetic flux, the changing um, geomagnetic field on Earth. So, and, and the moon, too. Does that have anything to do with it? Like hmm? the full moon sort of phenomena? Yeah, that has a, uh, I'm sure that has an effect on it, too. I mean, that's um, uh, something that uh, people have known for hundreds of years uh, and, and affects us. So we, we have very, oh, I want to say, and this is not just humans in effect, give you a real example. And again, I do mention this in Forgotten Civilization for those who want more information. It has now been found that uh, certain radioactive isotopes, the traditional view is that radioactive decay is a constant for any particular isotope, that it cannot be affected by any kind of chemical processes. It's not affected by temperature. It's not affected by heat. Uh, the only exceptions were that certain radioactive decay rates might have been affected. It was suggested conventionally by extremely, extremely, extremely powerful electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you know, uh, radioactive decay rates like carbon-14, et cetera, were not affected by anything. They were constant. It was a... Uh, you know, quantum, some people say quantum phenomena that was immune to any kind of chemical or temperature or electric uh, fields. It has now been found that some uh, radioactive decay rates, and maybe more than have been studied, but some that have been studied, are correlated with the distance between Earth and the sun, that they vary in synchrony in unison in correlation with our distance from the sun, uh, which is a very, very subtle effect. Mm. You know, something very subtle, yet it's affecting radioactive decay rates. So this is a real physical process. And if that's the case, it opens up wide the field of what else is being affected. <laughs> yeah. You know, on, uh, uh, based on astro nomical uh, cycles. You know, that's about the simplest, the Earth going around the sun. And the uh, radioactive decay rates have also been shown to vary based on major solar flares. So somehow solar flares are affecting radioactive decay rates. There's been some Russian work that some people doubt, but I've looked into it carefully, and I think it's good, serious work that... Um, uh, not just radioactive decay rates, but uh, various chemical reactions, physical chemical reactions are being affected by astronomical factors. Or I shouldn't say being affected by, they're correlated with astronomical mm -hmm. factors. 
they're correlated with um, the lunar cycle, they're correlated with the solar cycle, they're correlated with a sidereal cycle, more or less our position relative to the stars in the sky, which really means our position relative to the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Huh. Uh, so these are really weird, subtle effects that, according to classical physics, classical science, there should not be any correlation because uh, there's no mechanism, according to classical science, as to why there would be a correlation. There's no mechanism as to why these things would be, affect one another or be correlated with some third factor. And also the classic thing about astrology, for instance. Science, most classical scientists dismiss astrology which is really just correlations as we're talking about. Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because not only did only dismiss it, but it's ridiculed. I mean, oh, they ridicule it. And the classic thing is, well, you know, what could cause it? There's no force, right? Most, you know, there's a, a, a you could calculate it on paper, but so trivial gravitational force between the position of the planets and things on Earth, but it's such a trivial uh, gravitational effect that you could never even measure it. Uh, much less have it affect things. Hmm. Uh, yet, you know, we're, we're finding these correlations. We're finding these effects. Um, and, you know, it's pretty, the radioactive decay rates are not, you know, conspiring fraud to fool us. <laughs> yeah. At least we don't think so. <laughs> yeah, they might be conscious themselves. Who knows? <laughs> they're just going to fool us. But in fact, if they're fooling us, that's even more interesting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you've been to all these great places. Um, you've had the, had the luck luck to be able to to visit all these great sites. Do you have a favorite? Like, if a guy can, if he got, if someone can just go to one, what would which one would you recommend? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, they're all favorites to me. It depends on, like, if you had six children. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, you're supposed to play favorite. But I'll tell you one that sticks out in my mind right now because it's so pivotal, it's so important is Gebekli Tepe. Yeah. Southeastern Turkey. I mean, of course I love Egypt and I started in Egypt, but Gebekli Tepe is uh really important. Uh I do take trips to different sites with people. I take people along and I, can I plug my website? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to link to, uh, we're going to link to everything in the show notes so you can plug whatever you would like. Yeah. And, and also tell us what you're doing in the next couple of years, like what, what yeah, that's going to look for you. For people to go to my website, which is www.robertshock and that's spelled R O B E R T S C H O C H dot com so www.robertshock and again i want to spell it one more time a lot of people cannot spell my name correctly so if they're only hearing this this yeah. is what i'm doing this last name is spelled s c h o c h s c h o c h so www.robertshock.com and i take people to a number of sites i've taken people to turkey on several trips we're hoping to have another trip to Turkey, and you said years coming going forward. I'm hoping to continue to travel to Turkey, both to see the sites for myself, not just Gebekli Tepe, but there are lots of incredible things in Turkey. Cappadocia or Cappadocia, depending on how you want to pronounce it, is an incredible area where you have these huge underground cities. I think this ties right into the story. 
You know, why do you all go underground? The traditional view is, oh, they went underground to escape um, predators, predators to escape, you know, the roaming armies that were attacking them. To me, this is nonsense. If you go underground like that, you're just prey to, um, you know, invading army. All they have to do is block all the passages and you're trapped. You're in a death trap. So it, would a um, pyramid structure have a natural defense against solar Solar. Yeah, pyramid structure would be a natural defense against solar. So if you're in the uh, the underground um, uh, uh, chambers in the Great Pyramid, for instance, which is you know incredible, not the King's Chamber so much, but there's uh, the subterranean chamber would be the safest. If you're in one of these underground cities in Turkey, Cappadocia, that would be safe from a solar outburst. You know, and some archaeologists have been puzzled and scratching their heads. Well, why do many of these early sites have underground chambers? Why are they associated with natural natural or artificial caves? Some have puzzled, why would these ancient people spend all this time and energy building these underground structures? It makes no sense to them, but I think with the theory of solar outbursts and things happening in the sky... It makes very good sense. It pulls everything together. So I've been taking people to see these sites because you can describe it all you want on a podcast as we are. That's wonderful. You can read about it in uh, books, hopefully my book. <laughs> uh, look at pictures. You can you know spend hours on the uh, Internet. But you re- really never understand these sites, in my opinion, until you get to experience them firsthand. I've taken people to Gebekli Tepe, and some of these are worldwide travelers, and they've said to me that it was the most powerful experience they've ever had in their lives um, to see Gebekli Tepe uh, or other sites. I've had people say that about other sites, too. But are they, they still digging at Gebekli Tepe? Oh, yeah. Yes, they are excavating. They are excavating. They've only uncovered a very small percentage of it so far. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So I'll also be taking in future years coming up uh, back to Egypt. I'll be going back to Egypt myself, of course, but I will put together more trips where I'll take people with me. Uh, I am thinking right now about a trip to Peru and Bolivia at the end of this very year, end of 2014, early 2015, to go up to a site which we haven't talked about. And I don't want to get into heavily now. I know, of course, but known as Markawasi, which is a really incredible site high in the Andes. I'm hoping to put together a trip for the end of this year. Is that in Bolivia or Peru? Uh, That's in Peru. While we're there, we'll go both Bolivia and Peru. We'll see... uh, uh, Tiwanaku and you know all the famous sites like Titicaca yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do a grand tour of uh, Peru and Bolivia but I want to take people up to Markawasi which very few people ever go to because it's an incredible site high in the Andes and very I, I used to not like these terms but some sites deserve it very sacred site um, you cannot help but be moved by it yeah, we're just looking pictures on online right now. It looks crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, it's in, really good. It's, it's actually one. You asked what's my favorite site. Okay, if I now start thinking about Markawasi, that's one of my favorite sites. I mean, they're, they're incredible. So 
lot, lots of things uh, for the future and, um, you know, speaking engagement. People should just go to my website. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great website, too. So are you speaking at any conferences coming up or anything like that? Because your uh, presentation at, at Paradigm... 2013 was great and and you know what i really liked is uh is your participation throughout the whole weekend like you were there watching all the presentations very open to talk to all kinds of people so really really appreciate that your openness thank you thank you i appreciate that because i do try to be i do try to be and i feel if i'm in a if i'm at a conference i'm not one of these people that just shows up for my talking and leaves again i I try to be there the entire time, and I like to see everyone else speaking. I like to talk to um, people that attend. It's to me, so I enjoy it, mm-hmm. and I learn things, so that's good. Yeah, if people go to my website, but I, I'm actually speaking at um, a MUFON, New Jersey MUFON, uh, this coming weekend. Wow! So even a few days, I'll be speaking at the Fort Fest in uh, May. I'll be speaking at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in um, June, uh, up in upstate New York. Uh, We, uh, Katie and I are going to, where are we going? We're going to um, Norway. I'll be speaking in Norway uh, in June. I'll be speaking there in the summer, sometime in the summer in Florence. I think I'm going to be speaking in South Africa. Yeah, so trying to get around. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there's great Americans all over those places. So <laughs> get out and see uh, Robert when he comes through, guys. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks uh, so much. It was, it's was it been a great chat. And, and please thank Katie for helping us uh, organize everything, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She's been listening. So she'll, she, she, she's as much a part of this as I am. Yeah, that's great. That's the feeling I got. That's that's excellent. What a team. She took all the, um, you know, she's responsible for actually the photographs and the cover of Forgotten Civilization. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very cool. And that she put that together. Yeah, it's a great book, too. Darren's been reading it. I, I let him read it since I saw your presentation at Paradigm, so. <laughs> That's fair enough. You can read it afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was my companion on a plane. Yeah. On a plane. Could... Yeah. Right on, Robert. Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely great. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I hope to see you again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Come on a trip sometime. Welcome back to the Grimerica show. That was our chat with Robert Schock. Fascinating guy. Fascinating chat. I was, I, the only thing I regret is I want to ask him about some of his personal experiences, like especially around some of these ancient sites. So it's one of those interviews for me that the time flew by so fast. I had a bunch of stuff we could have still talked about. It's funny how quick it uh, goes by sometimes, eh? Yeah. Other times it just drags, drags and sometimes it just flies. It's usually when you don't know fuck all about what you're talking about, it seems to drag because you're just barely keeping your head above water. Time in general seems to fly by in the studio no matter what's going on. Yeah, the studio is in like an alternate reality. It is. <laughs> it's like a it's like a, a perpetual time slip. <laughs> like, oh, how was it 1030 already? So maybe next time we should try doing show prep and living in the rec room. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it eh? goes back. Is it 1030 already? Yeah. Holy fuck. 
Well, that was a great chat anyway. You you guys should like that one. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. Um, hey, one day maybe we'll have a little 3D Grimerica Moise. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to have uh, Robert Shock back on because uh, he's always he's always looking at new stuff. He's always on the kind of leading edge of, of this ancient mystery research. Yeah, I wonder, is he back at Paradigm this year? I don't know. I don't think so. We got a corner Graham Hancock there. Yeah, we got to line that up. We got to line some stuff up for that. We'll just have all the gear ready to go in the room, and then when he just, like, walks by, or if he's even, he doesn't go by, I'll be like, quick, come quick. And then you just whoosh, scoop into the room, throw a sack over his head, ask him questions. Darren's talking about the Paradigm Symposium 2014 with uh, John Anthony West, a famous Egyptologist. Good old Nick Redfern, Micah Hanks, Richard Dolan, Chase Klatsky, John Ward again. Eric von Daniken. Scotty Roberts, David Weatherly, the weathered man. Busco might be back again, it looks like. Laird Scranton, Larry Flaxman. Eric Von Daniken, you said that right? Andrew Collins, and of course, Graham Hancock. And the Grimericans. Yeah, and we'll be there. Uh, so I think that's about it. Long episode. Uh, they seem to remember when we were like an hour. No, I don't think we've ever been an hour. Or maybe around an hour and a half. This one's going to be closing in on two hours for sure. So um, please uh, email. Spam Graham. We always like uh, emails. Spam Graham. My email is G-R-A-H-A-M at com. And Darren's come up with no, this no, great no. idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spam Graham. Yeah. But Darren's come up with this great idea, too. If you want your own Grimerica email address, you can subscribe for like five bucks a month or something. So that helps contribute to the show. And then, so we've already got like four or five uh, additional Grimerica emails out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a pain in the ass. So the price is going up soon. So get them, <laughs> get them while they're cheap. <laughs> and of course, uh, you be, well, while we're uh, firing out emails, you guys might as well show uh, Producer Joe, some love. Fucking let's light up his email box a little bit with some feedback this week. Producer J O E. Yep. At GrimAmerica.com. Yep. We got Sweet. our own Joe. And just uh, leave me the fuck alone. You got enough twitting going on and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, so. I take the Twitter abuse. And so, there's a lot. So send Darren a, a at GrimAmerica tweet. He's tweet, got tweet a few me thousand, bullshit. Two thousand right back. Tweets every day to look at. So. No, no, I've tweeted. Let's see how many times GrimAmerica has tweeted. 11,400. So also make comments uh, on the website if you want. Yeah, reviews on iTunes are cool. Reviews on iTunes are very, very helpful. And uh, I think that's about it. You guys can uh, find all the stuff we talked about as usual in the show notes, all the music we heard. Oh, yeah, and as always, if you guys know anyone uh, do music or your friends do music and you're looking for an outlet, send it down and we'll try and uh, use it on the show and... Spread it uh, as far as our little hegemony goes anyway. Yeah, sounds good. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you next week with our meditation app while we are golfing in Phoenix. Feel my way through the darkness, guided by a beating heart. I can't tell where the journey will end, but I know where to start. They tell me I'm too young to understand. Say I'm caught up in a dream Well life will pass me by If I don't open up my eyes Well that's fine by me So wake me up And it's all over When I'm wiser and I'm older All this time
wish that I could stay forever this young. Not afraid to close my eyes. Life's a game made for everyone. And love is a prize. So 